talk is based on a column I wrote for Ethnography Matters. Uh, the column was called Persuasion and the Other Thing, Big Data Methodologies in the Political Climate. And I'm hoping to expand it to an actual academic article. So if you guys have any advice or pointers or venues, um, please bring those up in the Q&A. I would love that kind of input. This talk is also not about this. <laughs> I'm not interested in the current scene of magical thinking that is popular in the, in the concept of artificial intelligence and AI right now, which is usually a very thin fantasy of an inexhaustible slave labor class or an equally thin corporate capitalist nightmare about the inevitable violent slave revolution you get when you in institute that. Spoiler alert, if you have a lady sex robot in your film, she's going to kill somebody. <laughs> so you know. Don't be surprised. Nor am I particularly interested in the so-called real examples like Sophia, the robot constructed by Hanson Robotics, and which, was, which was recently granted citizenship in Saudi Arabia. Except <laughs> in, I know, right? Uh, did you know that Saudi Arabia doesn't grant citizenship to you if you're not Muslim? So is Sophia Muslim? Excellent question. Can she go anywhere without a male escort? Also an excellent question. Except insofar as stunts like this serve to distract from the real and actual deployments of algorithmic systems and immutable algorithmic systems in ways that are materially harmful to people by dangling this shiny sci-fi dream of machine ensoulment as a distraction. So we're not talking about this stuff. If you were here for that, I'm sorry. I do have some more pictures of data later. So earlier this year, a company called Cambridge Analytica shot to, shot to the forefront of the debate over big data and elections when it claimed responsibility for the upset victories of both Donald Trump and the Brexit campaign. Reports and popular media have cast this firm as both a puppet master propaganda machine able to mint voters through a proprietary blend of psychometric data, primarily Facebook likes and targeted nudges, and sort of a pied piper of modern democracy. In this story, repeated by both Mother Jones, The Guardian, among others, Cambridge Analytica, working in conjunction with an election management firm called the SCL Group, is both a kingmaker and a magician Voters are unable to resist attempts at political manipulation as they are seamlessly integrated with voters' online environment and pulled by strings too deeply anchored in voters' psyches to be ignored. Now, again, I'm not interested in the actual snake content of Cambridge Analytica's snake oil. As noted by the MIT Technology Review and BuzzFeed, the company has made some very large claims and has been very happy to take credit for several of 2016's startling election results, mm -hmm. but Cambridge Analytica relies heavily on the techno-magic of under-described big data psychographics and algorithmic nudging. Both the Tech Review and BuzzFeed point out that the amount and, and types of data that the company appears to be using are not that much different than the types of data acquisition and analysis that are already in common use. Instead, what I'm interested in are the ways in which Cambridge Analytica's sales pitch reflects how the subjects of these big data analytics projects are viewed by those conducting research and the entitlements held by those advertisers, tech firms, and researchers who just deploy big data analytics, particularly in support of political campaigns and other political projects. This sense of entitlement matters. And I'd like to posit that the use of big data and mutating algorithmic pr prediction in politics 
strips its targets of subjectivity, turning individuals into ready-to-read data objects and making it easier for those in positions of power to justify aggressive manipulation and invasive inference. I would like to further suggest that when big data methodology is used in the public sphere this way, it is reasonable for these data objects to, in turn, use tactics like obfuscation or outright sabotage up to the point of, of actually damaging the efficacy of the methodology in general to resist attempts to be read, known, and manipulated. Cambridge Analytica's willingness to throw its brand behind causes that some might call cacklingly evil, along with well-publicized incidents like the Facebook emotional contagion experiment in 2014, have dramatized these issues for the general public. But many, so, but many researchers, particularly Zainab Tufexi of the University of North Carolina, have been studying, have been sounding the alarm for big data's specific methodological implications in the political arena for quite some time. In 2014, Tufexi described the information asymmetry problem of big data methodology, that it is not merely that subjects do not know as much about the researchers as researchers know about them, but that as a core aspect of the methodology, subjects often do not know that they are being studied. While previous models of data collection allowed for the modeling of rough populations, Tufexi has noted that big data analytics allows for the modeling of individuals without the researcher ever having to encounter that individual or the individual being aware that their actions are being taken into the political sphere. By avoiding any responsibility to encounter research subjects in their own context, researchers are free to imagine that the individual in their data set, those data objects, neatly align with the researcher's pre-made analytical categories and further to imagine that these categories describe then the whole individual. This is a familiar problem with large end study methodologies, but in the political sphere, let us substitute constituents for research subjects and elected officials for researchers. While as Tufexi notes, polling and rough inferential population modeling has for a long time been part of the political sphere, the appeal of big data modeling and the sales pitch of big data modeling is its purported ability to specifically model individuals with high degrees of reflective and predictive accuracy. The rhetoric of big data methodologies as deployed by Cambridge Analytica and other firms provides the mathematical methodological justification for political campaigns and governments to ignore constituents in favor of data models of those constituents. This is the data doppelganger. <laughs> a, this is a funny slide. <laughs> a coin termed by the tech critic Sarah Marie Watson, the data doppelganger is overtaking the individual who is ostensibly its source. The echo is overtaking the voice. The map is overtaking the territory. In so much as these data doppelgangers are used to directly impact, direct, and influence the lives of those individuals from, whom, from whose actions they are derived, the sense in which their knowability is both assumed and constructed solely from building blocks provided by powerful others and rendered machine readable, they have a potential diminishing effect on, the agent, on those individuals' subjectivity and agency. The researcher, or the advertiser, or the campaign manager, is no longer dealing with a person possessed of their own self-determining agency and unmeasurable subjectivity, but is rather manipulating a fully comprehensible data object. Kathy O'Neill's recent book, Weapons of Math Destruction, which I wish she hadn't used that title, it's just so hard to say, <laughs> starkly describes the ways in which big data methodologies are used to model and then influence individual lives, either through slight nudges like the slow drip of targeted advertising 
or the more forceful shove of not getting a job or failing to qualify for a loan. O'Neill has ably highlighted the dangers of substituting suites of machine-readable behaviors or characteristics for actual encounters with people as they are, calling these types of algorithmic modeling opinions embedded in mathematics. Mathematizing subjective knowledge can make it appear objective, in this case creating the impression that algorithmically modeling a person is a useful or beneficial or superior way to know them. This model of grasping another person solely through preset characterizations and machine-readable actions means never being forced to encounter difference, that is, that is difference that exists outside the data set. Pre-established and machine-readable categories and actions are fundamentally aspects which are already familiar. They are recognized as important by the person collecting the data and hence, almost tautologically, their inclusion in the set. But difference that breaches the bounds of that data set becomes invisible. Philosopher Kelly Oliver discusses the limitations of this recognition model in her book, Witnessing. Any real contact with difference or otherness becomes impossible because recognition requires the assimilation of difference into something familiar. Only when we begin to think of the recognition of what is beyond recognition can we begin to think of the recognition of difference. The assumption of knowability, that a person can be grasped with mathematical completeness through their digital shadow selves, is coupled with a paradoxical problem, a certain entitlement of inference. Zainab Tufekci has provided a basic description of this problem, in the, of the problem described in the quote above, as such modeling allows for acquiring answers about an individual without directly asking questions of that individual. Tufexi states she is concerned primarily with the opaque deployment of influence or nudge techniques within the political sphere, and obviously these effects are concerning to me as well. But I am additionally concerned with the sense of entitlement required to infer personal data that may have been intentionally withheld by users for whom that ability, the ability to not disclose, may be one of the true privacy protections left available. In her meta-paper, uh, Tufexi highlights a 2013 study published by Michael Kozinski, David Stilwell, and Thor Greifel entitled, Private Traits and Attributes Are Predictable from Digital Records of Human Behavior. Kozinski and his collaborators use Facebook-like data to model individuals predicting, and this is a quote, sexual orientation, ethnicity, religious and political views, personality traits, intelligence, happiness, the use of addicted substances, parental separation, age, and gender. Researchers' models, which solely used Facebook likes, a fraction of the data available to any data broker, correctly discriminated whether the Facebook user is heterosexual or not in about 88% of cases, and predicted the race about 95% of the time, and political party affiliation about 85% of the time. That's a further quote from the paper. In other words, with just access to a fraction of the data Facebook collects, processed through a computational model, allows for a largely correct delineation of Republicans, Democrats, people who are gay, people who are straight, people who are of one religion or not, without looking at any other database, voter registration file, financial transaction, or membership in organizations. Tufexi further notes that these traits are being inferred through in available data and modeling algorithms, not, quote, asked or observed from the user pointing out that this type of modeling could be deployed in spaces where anonymous or pseudonymous behavior is common. 
The combination of separation from the user subject coupled with the assumption that the same user subject is fully graspable from the standpoint of the researcher results in a collapse of privacy rights for the user subject in the face of the right to know on the part of the researcher, the entitlement of inference on display in the Kaczynski project and in so many other commercial, political, and academic projects. How many people heard of the gay face study that came out recently? Yeah, that study is fucked up. It is a short hop from thinking you know someone to thinking you know what they want or what is good for them without any need to persuade or ask. And removing persuasion as a necessary step from the political sphere constitutes removing consent from the political sphere as well. There are two risks to the deployment of big data methodologies in the political sphere. The first has been repeatedly articulated by Zainab Tefexi and others that big data methodologies will allow secret or opaque influence influence techniques to be unleashed upon the electorate, creating a storm of personally tailored propaganda that blends blend seamlessly into a user's media feed. Tefexi has noted that this type of privatized targeting allows political campaigns to play directly on the fears and reactionary impulses of certain sets of voters, or to make promises to them without revealing to others what such promises are for fear that those promises might backfire. This creates a national political fabric, not of broad communities, of multiple points of address and compromise to be governed holistically, but of schismed individuals and groups, each believing they are the whole of the community that needs to be addressed and anyone else is an interloper. Democracy shifts from a form of government that is at least theoretically concerned with, with public debate and persuasion to one focused on private, opaque manipulation and emotional coercion. There is a second risk that occurs when political, when politicians and governments stuffed with psychographic data and algorithmic models no longer feel the need to encounter the governed at all. Both of these situations remove the consent of the governed from the political sphere. The invisible observation methods intrinsic to social media-based big data preclude meaningful consent, as does inferential modeling intended to collect non-disclosed information. And while elections still, in an imperfect fashion, allow individuals a voice in their government, most of the business of modern representative democracies takes place in times between elections. Already alienated from their vote through gerrymandering, corporate lobbying, and the failure of campaign finance reform, most voters could be pushed further from their elected representatives by these data doppelgangers. Might noisy town halls, which require elected, which require elected representatives to travel, which are vulnerable to disruptive in-person demonstrations, and which many Republicans in the U.S. have taken to actively and comically ducking since January, might they be replaced by Cambridge Analytic Kaczynski-style silent ac ac acquiescent constituent modeling? If we acknowledge that the risks to democracy posed by widespread social, social media-based big data modeling are genuine, what is the best way to mitigate these risks? Short of establishing that as a matter of political ethics, this type of constituent modeling is unethical and anti-democratic, or convincing social media firms to not sell likes or other psychographic data, which is an un unlikely thing to happen, what forms of resistance might be deployed at the individual or local level? Opting out or social media abstinence would immediately jump to mind if you do not wish to be modeled or tracked, simply do not participate in these systems which expose you to these tracking and modeling algorithms. However, this strategy is ineffective on a number of levels. First, it only protects those who are able to opt out of these tracking and modeling systems. Given the central role social media plays in many people's social and professional lives, opting out is simply not a viable option for everyone. 
Second, regarding the specific issue of constituent modeling, opting out at an individual level would remove even the shadow representation offered by the data, data doppelganger. As long as enough people participate in the system that systems that permit this type of modeling, those who opt out would simply not be represented and in all likelihood not missed that much. Obfuscation as described by Finn Brutton and Helen Nissenbaum in their 2015 book by the same name might be the best mode of resistance to per pervasive surveillance and modeling systems that are unlikely to be rejected by those in power or those who seek power due to perceptions of their efficacy and profitability. By utilizing obfuscatory, see that this is a central word in the talk and I'm just not gonna be able to say it, <laughs> obfuscatory methods, <laughs> Cambridge Analytica-style systems of constituent profiling and manipulation can be rendered ineffective to, for the targeted population as a whole and thus discouraging their use. Brunton and Nissenbaum highlight several different examples of obfuscations that could be deployed to render this type of constituent modeling less effective. Some of these models also show ways constituent modeling could be easily gamed by those who wish to influence polling or a politician's perception of their constituents, which further underlines the democratic dangers posed by encouraging a separation between the people and their representatives via a mediated interloper. Several of these methods create noise, either at the level of the platform or the individual profile. Platform noise generation might look like stacking a big data channel like Twitter or Facebook with noisy bots that share just enough characteristics with the targeted data set to be included. However, recent news has also shown the risk of using noisy bots as in some people just take them way too seriously. Another method, like farming, involves paying individuals to like products or brands on Facebook, often thousands at a time. This behavior could devalue the like itself as a psychographic data point. At the individual obfuscation level, Britton and Nissenbaum note several add-ons that exist or experiments that operate on the logic of their Track Me Not browser extension, which obfuscates an individual's genuine, genuine search history by generating a background hum of fake search requests for every real search request. Ad nauseum works in the background of your web browser, invisibly clicking on every ad on every page you visit. This activity floods ad tracking networks with useless and inaccurate data, and also allows those websites you visit to collect revenue from the pay-per-click ads they feature, which is just fun. <laughs> Facecloak creates a network within the Facebook network, allowing users to store personal data with Facecloak instead of Facebook, so it creates another set of servers that store that data and then auto-populate pages for you. Users of the Facebook add-on can see your personal data as integrated with your Facebook page, but Facebook itself never possesses it. Brunton and Nissenbaum also discuss baiting and flooding, which, it, which involves individuals actively feeding false information into their Facebook profiles. Um, one of the developers is quoted as saying, the trick is to populate your Facebook with just enough lies as to destroy the value and compromise Facebook's ability to sell you as an actual person to be sold ads to. One tactic that entails both individual and platform obfuscation is a patent held, interestingly enough, by Apple, entitled Techniques to Pollute Electronic Profiling. Brunton and Nissenbaum describe it as a cloning service intended to, quote, automate and augment the process of producing misleading personal information, targeting online data collectors. This cloning service would mimic a user's personal rhythms and behavior but may begin to diverge from those interests in a gradual incremental way, automatically browsing, clicking, signing up for websites and newsletters, and chatting with other clones, maybe ordering small physical items from time to time. 
Eventually, in theory, attempting to find your true data stream among your mob of data clones would be like trying to find a needle in a haystack of other needles. For Brunton and Nissenbaum, obfuscation is of particular utility in cases of information and power asymmetries, which, as noted before, are core issues in big data analytics and inferential modeling. Regarding inevitable accusations of data pollution or damage, Brunton and Nissenbaum conclude that in order for a charge of data pollution to stick, a data assemblage must be shown to hold greater value than whatever the obfuscator aims to protect. Data, data pollution is only unethical when the integrity of the data flow or data set in question is ethically required. Moreover, when the integrity of the data outweighs other values and interests at stake, must be, must be explicitly settled. In political deployments of big data analytics and inferential modeling, what is at stake is the ability of the powerful to see and meaningfully engage with, cons with consenting electorate. A claim could be made that if current trends continue and big data psychographic methodologies become a primary means of electioneering and governance, which is really not all that unlikely, actively attempting to reduce the effectiveness of that data set would be unethical. But there are other ways for governments and campaigns to, to encounter their electorates, to figure out how best to represent their constituents and communities. A town hall may have the potential to be messy, loud, and unpredictable, but it allows an encounter between the people and their elected representatives. Referendums on specific issues given to the public for a direct vote can't reveal private information. Your vote on, marijuana med on medical marijuana legalization won't tell the government if you're gay. Western democracies, particularly the United States, excel in developing new mechanisms to distance the individual from the power of their vote. Big data methodologies and the inferential analytics they power are, as deployed in elections represent yet another move to push the people in all their loud, messy, <coughs> demanding changeability out of politics in general. But unlike gerrymandering or my favorite, the Electoral College, this move can be actively resisted on an individual level. 